In April of 2018, a number of peer-reviewed papers came out examining the dynamics of race and gender within the fields of the geosciences. Today, for this episode of PhD Buzz, I'm very excited to have uh, two of the authors of one of these papers with me today. I'm Dr. Zainyal, representing Humanities, and we're PhD Buzz, a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. And I'm recording this at the University of British Columbia on the traditional, ancestral, unseceded territory of Musqueam people. And today, I have with me Sarah and Leo, who are the authors of one of these studies and are in the geosciences. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so I'm uh, Leo, Leo King, and I'm in the uh, geography department at UBC. I'm studying Greenland ice sheet hydrology. And uh, Sarah. <laughs> I'm Sarah. I'm uh, also in the geography department. I'm a first year PhD student studying coral reefs in the Central Pacific. Which is incredibly exciting. Um, and the title of their paper that came out through the journal Facets was Diversity in Geoscience, Participation, Behavior, and the Division of Scientific Labor at a Canadian Geoscience Conference. And something I'd also want to highlight for our listeners is we did have geographers on our show earlier this year, but uh, geography being such a capacious field, we have um, our guest today from the very other side of the discipline. So I think that perhaps a a good way to start is to explain the field so that our listeners can really understand the context of the work that you ended up doing. Yeah, geography is a very broad field, and its broadness is its strength and its weakness and a constant source of identity crisis for geographers. We have very different researchers in the department. Essentially, it's the study of of life on Earth. It's very broad, (laughs) and and all that means that the physical geographers will tend to look at life from a biophysical, biogeochemical, biophysical perspective. Generally, might describe themselves as Earth scientists, and the human geographers look at the social dimensions of life on Earth. But collectively, what we're all interested in is how these different processes and different scales of systems work together to create the spatial diversity, generally spatial and temporal diversity of life on Earth. And so what's interesting is, again, you work on glaciers and um, you work in the Pacific. Sorry, I'm speaking very reductively. I'm sure I'm collapsing a lot of complexity. So being from the physical side, the study that you did would seem to be more um, drawing upon the type of work that uh, people in your field from the more human geography side end up using. Would you say that, would you like to speak a little bit about that shift in methodology? Also, because you're observing, I guess, the dynamics within the physical sciences, do you find that race and gender and conversations around race and gender are very different on the different sides of the disciplinary spectrum? Yeah, so this project came out of this identity crisis in geography. We, as a department and as a discipline, are always kind of wondering how do we, how do these two sides work together and what is the value we bring each other? So myself and some other colleagues, Mark and Lucy, who are both authors on the paper as well, Mark being a human geographer, We set up a committee in the department called the Geographic Identity Committee to explore ideas of physical and human geography and the value we we bring to each other. And we, Lucy and I and our other co-author, Dave, were also co-organizing the conference that we ended up studying. And Mark suggested, why don't we use this as an opportunity to bring the two sides of geography together and make each other relevant to a project? So Mm -hmm. uh, that's this, this is what we came up with, looking at diversity, because Absolutely, the conversations about diversity are completely different across the spectrum of human to physical. I think they're 
much, much more nuanced and um, much more in-depth on the human side. And I hesitate to call them maybe superficial on the, not superficial in the sense of not being, you know, meaningful or well-meant or it just superficial in the sense of not digging into the nuances of, of what is really going on and learning the vocabulary and going beyond the numbers. One of the things that there has been a lot of conversation about uh, gender and racial diversity in the geosciences and in the sciences more generally, STEM disciplines generally, but they tend to get a little hung up on the numbers. Just, mm. you know, let's aim for 50% of everybody or whatever is representative of the population and then we'll call it a day we did a great job. And so they don't tend to look into challenging norms or systematic privilege or anything like that. They're very, I, I don't know if you would agree with that, Sarah, but no, I feel like I they're do. a little bit. I think the physical yeah. geographers in general, uh, not everybody, but have a lot of work to do. Um, and as physical geographers, Leo and I were talking about this earlier, but we both, this project ended up being a really big learning opportunity for both of us. We learned a lot from doing it. And there are definitely some things that I think we would do differently if we were doing it again. Mm -hmm. So to put this in context, as you told me, your study came out around the same time as a number of other studies came out, which had slightly different approaches. And you're doing particular work that hasn't been done elsewhere. Uh, they were both published in Nature Geoscience, which is a very, which is probably the, the ultimate journal in the field, and very much targeted towards an international audience, but also a very American audience as well. And one of them look, was, a de was similar to our study in that it was looking at the demographics of uh, men and women presenting at the American Geophysical Union Conference, which is the largest geosciences conference in the world. It's on the order of 25,000 attendees, so it's massive. And they looked at numbers of who presented, so how many women presented as poster presenters, as oral presenters versus men. And, you know, it's a really interesting study, similar findings to us. But again, it sort of stops at the numbers, uh, which is fairly typical. The other study was about racial diversity in the geosciences, benchmarking it by the number of PhDs that were being awarded to people of color and and white PhD earners and noticed, didn't notice, they, they, they demonstrated a very stagnant trend through time whereby the number of PhDs awarded to people of color is not increasing or hasn't increased in the last 40 years. So despite diversity mm -hmm. initiatives. So, but again, sort of looking at numbers and that was one of the things they articulated in that study was that clearly these diversity initiatives are not working. Although they do seem to be working somewhat for women because now women and men earn equal numbers of PhDs in the geosciences in the US according to that study. So there's been some success there, no success on the uh, racial diversity side. So those initiatives don't seem to be working, would be I think the take home of those papers. Yes, I would agree. Um, and one thing to note is the geosciences are widely considered the least diverse of all of STEM fields. Oh, really? Yes. That's, that's fascinating. Um, even compared to like math or like some forms of physics. Yes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And so because of that, NSF, which is the National Science mm -hmm. Foundation in the United States, had funded a lot of um, programs to try and increase diversity. And so these papers are coming on the heels of some of those, uh, those projects, which clearly, uh, as Leo said, don't seem to be working. Has there been any speculations as to why of 
the entire range of uh, disciplines covered by STEM, does, does it seem something that's inherent to the structure of the discipline or even like the, the topic of the discipline? Has there been any speculation in that regard? I, there has been there has been some speculation. I think one of the the main barriers to entry that existed for a long time was that the discipline ten, tended and still tends to be very field based, and there is a lot of gendered but also highly racialized access to field work. So you, if you're talking about mountaineering to get your samples, mm-hmm. then you need to come from a fairly privileged background that grants you firstly access to out, to outdoor training and skills and interest, but also gives you the confidence and desire to want to go out and, and engage in that kind of activity. And so for a very long time, I think that being the dominant form of data collection created this, this hierarchy of privilege within the discipline. That would be one of the historical origins of it that's changing now. It's we're getting a variety, a larger variety of methods, but that would be one of the one of the barriers. Yeah, um, and you had mentioned, and I'm sure maybe our listeners have heard about that about it. Um, there's been very high profile cases of hashtag MeTooPhD um, sexual harassment and sexual assault cases throughout all disciplines. But one of the ones that you mentioned was particularly with a, a Antarctica researcher who'd exploited his fieldwork privileges to on one of his graduate students, was that it? Yes, so he, I don't remember his name, I know he's at um, Boston University, and he had taken, I think I think it was more than one, I think he had taken women students to the Antarctic with him to work with him, and as they were isolated in the field, he took advantage of them, um, both sexually and like emotionally. And I think yeah. I, the reason why I, re- I think that I remember it was more than one was uh, the woman who finally came forward, came forward because she'd finally gotten tenured, so she didn't feel comfortable coming forward until then mm-hmm. because she was worried about backlash because he's very well known in his field. Yeah, sexual harassment in field work is very well documented as affecting, I, I can't remember, I mean the majority of, of female field workers report having experienced sexual harassment in the field. So yeah, field work creates in a lot of ways these barriers to entry and it also, from a historical perspective, represents a lot of this colonial masculine domination yeah, like very of nature mentality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it's very much there is very much this connection to nature and manliness we we didn't use the term in the paper but it's essentially what it's getting at is an idea of it's a little bit of a old boys club you know mm-hmm. you go out in the field and you get frostbite, but that's okay. You have a bottle of whiskey, and you'll laugh about yeah, it later. Like and these great men, Shackleton, and all that—all these bros going out yeah. To, yeah. To, to the polls. Yeah. So historically, it hasn't been accessible, or maybe even targeted or interested people who didn't identify with that kind of personality. Mm-hmm. And then, contemporarily, it's hard. I don't know. I'm not sure. I think that's a hard one to answer. I think um, obviously. People all over the earth of all walks of life inhabit the, the, the earth. Mm-hmm. Presumably they all experience it in various ways and, and want to be engaged in studying earth processes. So why it's remained very privileged in, in the north and very racially and gender segregated is probably very complicated. As far as I know, there haven't been any academic studies actually looking at the causes either, which would be, I'm not sure how 
how you would go about that, but it would be really interesting. I mean, I think it's important to figuring out how to undo it is mm -hmm. figuring out what the causes are. I guess my, my other question is, does it seem like the physical geosciences have a stronger relationship to, say, industry? Is that perhaps also a component of it that sort of ends up directing the type of research that people are interested in? I know there's a lot of consulting work. So people who get their PhDs in hydrology, for example, might work uh, with the government or might work for a consulting firm. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure about other subdisciplines. Yeah, I think that would vary by department and okay. subdisciplines. So geography doesn't, I would not say typically that the projects are aligned with industry interests, but okay. somewhere like earth and ocean sciences, which is very, very, I would say very, I mean, their building is funded by, by industry money. There's obviously a lot of interest in in driving, or not driving, but directing research towards mineral exploitation. Yeah, especially in BC right now. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So I think that there typically tends to be more a stronger association with industry and earth and ocean sciences. Yeah, I would agree with that. Thank you. I think that really helped to sort of set like the historical and disciplinary field for people such as myself. And so now I think that we're better equipped as listeners to sort of really understand what you're doing with the study itself. So would you like to give us an overview and guide us through what you did? Yeah, so, so yeah, so we had the Canadian Geophysical Union Conference being held here at UBC last year in 2017. <laughs> um, and myself and then two other co-authors, Mark and, and Dave, nope, sorry, Dave and Lucy were on the local organizing committee for that conference and we wanted to look at gender diversity so we wanted to push it beyond the numbers. We didn't just want to repeat a study that said, yep, there aren't as many women here and there aren't as many mm -hmm. people of color here because that does seem pretty, it seem, it's important to document and we did document it, but we wanted to go a little bit beyond the numbers and try to look at why, if we could, why we see the numbers that we see. So in that sense, we pulled in qualitative methods. We did what we loosely call a conference ethnography, although we know that it probably doesn't tick off all the boxes for what an ethnography should be. That was sort <laughs> so of our- anthropologist somewhere like, oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so it was, we sort of loosely based it off a conference ethnography methodology, but we tried to make it a little bit more structured so that we could spread the work across eight researchers who were in the conference collecting data. We attended, I think, 75, 76% of the sessions. Between the eight of us, we were split into four teams of two, and we observed the presenter behavior, um, presenter demographics, audience demographics, the disturbance in the room. So we sort of had these semi-structured templates where we recorded a bunch of qualitative and quantitative observations to build a picture of who was in the room and how were they behaving in the room to try mm -hmm. to put together, bring together the numbers. You know, you don't have a lot of diversity in this session and does that correlate with particular types of behaviors and to try to see if we could build a picture of what was going on. And uh, sorry, just a quick question. And are there bodies that exist either within the academic organization or with your department that are dedicated to talking about these issues? I think that depends on the organization. Okay. So, so the CGU is a smaller organization. It's the, yeah, like I said, the Canadian Geophysical Union. So it's it's a smaller membership. The conference was about 512 people and it's volunteer run. So people who put it together are all volunteers. And so there is a limited capacity to 
bring in more more work. I just say that to contrast with something like the American Geophysical Union, which has a full-time staff to put on that conference mm -hmm. of 25,000, and they have very explicit diversity initiatives because they, well, firstly, because they have more resources and there are more discussions. They have more sessions, so they do have sessions there that are specifically about the culture of the geosciences, and they have engaged a little bit more at that level, whereas here with a smaller body of researchers, I wouldn't say that there has been a very deliberate or strong engagement, but that might reflect resources the, and size. Yeah. 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 Okay. So what did you end up observing, or what was the experience like? We found a lot of different things. So we looked at, um, in addition to the, all the things Leo mentioned, we also looked at the substance of the um, different presentations. So we were trying to get an idea of what types of things people were including and if that changed based on the person's race or gender. Uh, for example, we looked at like different methods that were used and we saw that women um, were more likely to use field work than other types of methods, for example, which was actually the opposite of what we had expected, because fieldwork, like we talked about. that history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It tends to be male-dominated. Um, but we think that's because we saw a lot of males in, or men that were doing computational work, so a lot of modeling. And so it seems like, for it seems like the possibility is that men have been moving into modeling because that's like the newest, the big trend, that's what people are moving towards doing, mm -hmm. and that, in that movement has opened up space for women to get into field work. That did not cross over to people of color though, so in places where there were more um, women, there tended to be less people of color mm -hmm. and vice versa. And in this study, when we talk about people of color, unfortunately we were talking about mostly men of color because we only had 14 women of color at the entire conference mm -hmm. out of a, how many people? 512, I think. Well, at No, least. that was no. out of. Yeah, that was, sorry. Sorry, that's out of presenters. So we had. 256. 14 out of 256. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so not very not, diverse. Yeah, it's not too much better. Yeah. You, know, you shift those numbers around. Yeah, yeah exactly. So. That's why I tend to use the term people of color, not specifically women of color, because mm -hmm. they're very, very underrepresented mm -hmm. at the conference. Yeah, we so the paper is broken down into three parts, just to quickly summarize them. The first part is just benchmarking, so very similar to what other studies have done, and just recording what other stories, what other studies have re recorded that overall there were, I think we had about 36% um, of the conference attendees were women. And one thing that we really like about our study is that if you just look at that number, you think, oh, 36, that's not bad. But then when you start to pick it apart and you start to look at how and where women were women and people of color, although unfortunately we didn't collect conference scale demographics on people of color because we just did a online registration mm -hmm. check mark, uh, box for self-identified gender. So we only have those at a conference level scale. But when you start to pick it apart, you start to see that conference level numbers really hide the fact that women are not making gains equally. So they are overrepresented as poster presenters relative to oral presenters, posters being in at this conference, I would say a less desirable, less high profile position. And we couldn't distinguish whether that was because they were applying for fewer posters or whether they were being assigned to more, po more posters. So we couldn't uh, disambiguate that, but either way, they're sort of selectively being being put or putting themselves in these lower profile positions. We also found that within the subdisciplines, there's a lot of, there's a huge range of participation rates. So women were 
very poorly represented in some sessions, but then they were very highly represented in other sessions. So, so you are getting these gains in particular niches, which is something that you don't see if you just look at conference scales and conference scale numbers. So there's something happening in there culturally mm-hmm. within certain subdisciplines. Oh, I was just going to ask, could you give some examples of the spectrum of subdisciplines? So there's, what is it, five different? So there's hydrology, uh, earth surface, solid earth, which would be more like geology. Maybe I should explain. Yes, earth surface would be processes that occur on the surface of the earth, like river processes or wind processes, hill slope processes, so landslides, that kind of thing. And uh, solid earth would be more sort of the geology of the earth. And then there was a small geodesy subdiscipline, which I would struggle to explain to you what they do because none of us have really figured that out yet. I went to the sessions and I still don't quite understand what they do. And then there was a biogeosciences session, which uh, we observed had the highest number of women participants as a percentage, which is consistent with what other studies have found too, that within STEM subdisciplines, women make particular gains in the biologically oriented, the biogeo sort of oriented sessions. And then am I missing... Oh, and then CSAFM was the the Canadian Society of Agricultural and Forest Meteorology was the partner organization for this conference, and and so they had their own session as well. Okay. So that's sort of the breadth of... Thank you. That's very helpful. (laughs) I'll just... um, So that was the first section of the paper. I won't make this too long. I'll just quickly go through the other two really fast. The second one was basically what Sarah was just looking at. We looked at the distribution of labor within the biogeosciences, so what Sarah was talking about. And then the last session we looked at the behaviors of individual people within the conference, so like presenters and question askers. And we observed, to our surprise, we think that we found evidence of what we're calling a chilly climate for women and people of color in sessions where, I guess specifically for women, where women are not represented as speakers. So in sessions where you have almost all male speakers, we observed higher incidents of hostile or aggressive questioning styles, language use, anecdotes, sorts of what we consider ambient identity cues, so cues of sort of who belongs and who doesn't belong Mm -hmm. in those sessions. And I think one of the interesting things, another one of the interesting things that we found in that section was that, um, like Leo said, we also looked at audience behavior, so disturbance basically. So we quantified like how how much attention people were paying by counting the number of people that were going in and out of the room while the person was presenting. Um, we counted people who were on their electronics and people who were talking during the presentation. And we found that particularly when women of color, or sorry, not women, but when people of color were speaking, they, people in the audience were less likely to pay attention. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry. Just, it's uh. very frustrating, but yeah. Yeah, so, and that was a statistically significant result. So mm-hmm. that was... Disappointing to see, but I hopefully validates what a lot of people have uh-huh. experienced. We found a, a lot. It was a big study, <laughs> and sort of digesting it down into the main findings is hard. But that probably summarizes them. That's fantastic. I guess, like, uh, what sort of things didn't make into the final paper? One thing we looked at was territorial acknowledgments. So we we mm-hmm. were going to quantify who did territorial acknowledgments. Um, but actually pretty much no one did, except oh. for the professors from UBC um, mm-hmm. when opening the sessions, or not the sessions, the but when conference. opening the conference. Yeah, there were two two at the beginning of the conference, but 
none that we observed in the sessions. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. We were oh, we had these semi-structured templates to observe, and there was so much stuff in there that in the end we just couldn't really use that we would have loved to. I'm trying to... One was accents. So we were yeah, trying to see if, if maybe people were, were not paying attention in the audience if somebody was speaking because they had a strong accent or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but we all quantified that differently, so uh, we couldn't compare. Yeah. yeah. There were so many, like one thing that I was kind of interested in was how people represented themselves in terms of the use of organizational logos, because that's something I've always found really interesting at conferences, especially these scientific conferences where you get these, you have these big funding bodies. So, you know, NASA will fund a project and then that is so cool. So they'll put that (laughs) logo up there. And we did kind of record those kinds of observations. But in the end, there were so many things that were just really hard to consistently record across eight observers. So we didn't include, but there's still a lot of behavioral norms and cultural norms that we couldn't capture because we didn't know what we were going to observe going in. And now that we believe that we've demonstrated that there is this strong culture of identity. I think that we would refine what kinds of cues we would be looking for as we went in a little blank slate. So mm-hmm. no, I think that's fascinating because especially even what you with what you're able to bring into your study, like sort of captured a lot of the texture of the experiences that it sounds like a lot of the other studies in the field haven't been getting. And I think at least you're drawing attention to the fact that these things do matter, mm-hmm. even though people think that it's not just a matter of the numbers being in the room, but what the experiences are. And I guess I'm curious by the, what sort of responses have you gotten? And also what sort of support did you have going into this either either from organizations or your PIs or within the departments? And what have people's reactions been afterwards? The department was very supportive the entire way through. Um, Yeah, my advisor was not involved in the study, but he was excited that I was being, that I was a part of it. I know the head of the department was also supportive of it. Yeah, and uh, we were invited to do a colloquium on it in the department. As, oh, that's which great. Was, yeah, which mm-hmm. was great. And I think to the department, we had a very strong supportive reaction to that because it is one of the few multi or interdisciplinary projects, to, I think, to come out of the geography department recently. And it's, you guys. Yeah, and it's grad student run. <laughs> And hopefully it inspires human and physical geographers to work together a bit more because there's a lot of work to be done in that space and it would be great to see more of that. But So we should send a big shout out to Mark Tadaki, who was the human geographer who brought us in and bridged the divide, one of our co-authors. So thanks, Mark. But the, the response outside of the department has been interesting, I would say. So most of it has been through... Twitter, I think, which is, I don't know what it's like in the social sciences and humanities, but scientists love Twitter. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like you, uh, I will have talked with Liz about this before because she is biomed, and like the SciComm hashtag is so active. In <gasps> humanities, we don't have anything like that. Okay. Like wh- right now, I'm part of this effort to try and like mobilize some hashtags for like people of color studying literature and other things like mm. that, but like it's very, there's a lot of little things and nothing on the scale of the way that SciComm has been able to be organized. Yeah. So. I think it's really funny because I actually, I don't think that young people use Twitter, but I feel like <laughs> scientists on Twitter are like, look at us, we're communicating. And I'm like, well, you're communicating with each other, but. <laughs> Better than nothing. <laughs> Better than nothing, yeah. I like following scientists on Twitter for what it's worth. We did some sort of informal tracking of their response on Twitter. and might make a little noise, but we just thought it was really interesting 
to look at the the tweets to see who is tweeting it out and just this this is a little bit I didn't track all of them this is just from a period of a few days but 41% of the tweets were from white women mm-hmm. which is to me fascinating because I don't know the demographics of Twitter but I doubt it's so many white women yeah I mean maybe it is maybe it is mostly white women on Twitter no, but only 12.5% so. were white men. So I guess that's sort of the big, that's maybe the contrast I should have started with. Yeah, so. Oh, okay, wow. <laughs> so I'm, again, I don't know the demographics of Twitter, but I'm pretty sure that 12.5% aren't, men don't make up only 12.5%. So there, that's been interesting to see who is, who's engaging mm-hmm. because and we so, did. so, and it's, sorry, if, just to follow that, so it's like about 12% white men, 40-something percent white women, and everyone else is people of color? That would be about, probably about 20% people of color, mm. and then the rest would be organization, oh, organization okay, yes, retweets. Yeah, lots of organization tweets. So, and then in terms of comments, the only, so we posted uh, an op-ed about the paper on theconversation.com, which is a website that publishes, I guess, sort of general interest pieces about academic work. And we only got one comment on there, but it was kind of funny because it came out, it was sort of like immediate, and it was an immediate questioning of our methods, which was really funny and, to be honest, pretty gratifying because, <laughs> uh, well, I'm pretty confident in our method, methods, but it was also just, you know, gratifying <laughs> to see that, yeah, you know, this guy, so it's a, it's a white male professor and just no engagement with the content of mm-hmm. the findings, but just a sort of knee-jerk defensive reaction to it. Mm-hmm. I think it was possibly someone who had been at the conference, too. Oh. I don't know if that had... So I was feeling kind of fragile. Yeah, yeah, yeah probably. Tears. But. Yes. Um, yeah. CSAFM, who, like Leo had said, had co-hosted the conference. They were really supportive. Um, we sent a copy of it to them, and they sent it out to their membership. That's wonderful. Yeah, and they said they were going to discuss it at an upcoming executive meeting. The CGU, we sent it to them as well, and we haven't heard much back from them as far as we know it hasn't been circulated to the membership and we haven't heard of any discussion about what they can do with it to improve diversity at the conferences so we're not sure if that is something that will be coming or um, we're hoping we're we're hoping hoping they'll this could be we think an opportunity for them and to hopefully improve future conferences so we're hoping they'll they'll come around and help Mm -hmm. publicize it And I guess, like, my question then is, like, how do you find that this has impacted your engagement with the field? Because it sounds like, because this is, like, one of your major field conferences. This is a conference you guys are going to be going to annually for, you know, for quite a while. Do you feel like this is going to make you mindful in different ways? Do you feel like that's going to allow you to keep them accountable? Or what do you feel like that might might change for you in terms of how you engage that space and within the profession? My studies are slightly outside the scope of CGU, so... um, I went specifically to participate in this study, so I'm not sure if I'll go again, but I do know that even at the conferences I go to, uh, as a marine biologist, they tend to be, women, white women especially, tend to be fairly well represented in the field of marine biology, but just the types of behaviors that I'll look for, things in the audience, the types of questions people are asking, how long the questions are, like we actually timed some of the questions we found. I think there were six questions that were over a minute long, and all of them were asked by men. Was it like more? <laughs> this is not so much a question as a statement. Yeah, we we <laughs> checked that too. Mm-hmm. Men were more likely to have statement type questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so just things like that that I hadn't 
considered before. We also, because we were counting people in the audience, we didn't quantify or like make note of where exactly people were sitting, but it's definitely something that I, that we've thought about. Like, mm-hmm. Do women or do people of color tend to sit like in the back, for example? Those are all things that we've kind of started thinking about since doing this. It just really has opened my eyes to behaviors that I, I think I, I don't know, I guess on some level I registered them, but mm-hmm. didn't really process exactly what they meant or what was causing them. Yeah, I think in terms of my feelings about the response, a little disappointed that the discussion and the response has mostly been from people who already know and care. So, Mm -hmm. which I I think was a risk when we wrote it. We wrote it quite long, Mm -hmm. and we knew that writing a long paper might not appeal to people who hadn't previously engaged with the issue. They might not be like, oh, great, here's a really long paper that I'll sit down and read. I'm not shocked that it hasn't really made the rounds with the people that we would hope to target, but... Also, sorry, so what would be the example? What's a short versus a long paper in your discipline? Oh, good question. Short would be, so like the Nature Geoscience papers that just came out are about two pages. Oh, wow. They have a whole bunch of stuff in the supplemental material, Uh so typically a Nature Geoscience paper would be like two to three pages with like... 30 pages of supplemental material that nobody will ever read. They don't include methods in their papers either. That's all in the supplement, huh, supplementary. Okay. Yeah. And our paper was 27, which is long for for the geosciences field. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think average would be, I don't know, what, 10 to 12? 10 to 12. 10 to 12 would be like a reasonable. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. We were also very careful about the types of language that we used in the paper, we tried very hard not to use anything that might be considered inflammatory, specifically because we were trying to appeal to a wider audience, um, mm-hmm. white men that we thought might be defensive if we used certain types of language. Yeah. Uh, apparently it hasn't worked though. <laughs> yeah, actually, so the conversation article, which we wrote, I have two friends, when, when that I sent, well, I sent it to more than two friends. I have more than two friends, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I had sent it to two friends who are both engineers. Uh, one of them is male and one of them is female. And to my surprise, they both thought that it was quite an, what did they say? Something to the effect of aggressive, which I was really surprised at. I wasn't sure how to tone it down more other mm-hmm. than to say something like, everybody at the conference was super duper duper duper, but. Uh, <laughs> but there seems to be some glaring absences here. Yeah, yeah. not yeah. their fault, not their fault. So, because we thought we'd really kept it quite to the point in the conversation piece, but they'd found it. Um, so that's a typical reaction, I'm sure, as you yeah, know, <laughs> for people to be very defensive. Yeah, I think that, so in the humanities, there's an amazing th- uh, woman of color, queer of color, I think, named Sarah Ahmed, and she does, she shifted her analysis in recent years on how organizations address diversity. And I think the way that she said it is, like, when you're the one who brings up the problem, you become the problem mm. for people in the institution. Yeah. yeah. I think that this kind of gets back to a little bit of your original question about the way that the human geography and the physical geography, if we lump physical geography in with the rest of the earth sciences, talk about issues of race and gender. They just, they don't really. They talk about it in the same language that's probably been used for decades of diversity in STEM, and it hasn't really been allowed to translate into something that's more challenging to people in power. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of power I'm sure I know there is in in any sort of academic or research institution, I know there will be, but it's very, there is a lot of power in, in the geosciences. I mean, some of these research projects are millions of dollars of funding 
by NASA. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think it's the type of thing where people are willing to change their behaviors when it's easy. Yeah. But when it actually requires them to do some work and self-reflection, people are not quite as open to it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little frustrating to see that people are not willing to be more self-reflective, at least so far. Um, we haven't actually received any feedback that that's not happening, but considering we haven't seen any evidence that it is so far. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the fact that you did this study is probably like a good step forward and hopefully like either you guys or other allies can then use your study as some sort of template to make change, mm -hmm. right? That's the hope. That's always the hope, but yeah. you know, um, preaching to the choir is always an issue. Yeah, although I think that we would definitely so, I mean, being on the local organizing committee for the conference last year, if I was to do it again, I would definitely make changes. Again, even for last year, I wanted to institute certain diversity initiatives, but it is, a, like I said, it is a small organization. Organization You always run up against the resources barrier, and that will continue to be a barrier for diversity, I guess, because it's going to be lower on the hierarchy of what people are going to invest time into. Mm -hmm. um, which is a problem. Which it is a problem, change. yeah, which I don't know. I don't, I mean, I'm sure there's institutional ways that they could, you know, they're making thousands of dollars off the conference. They could maybe they could invest a, a few hundred yeah, or yeah. somebody to draw up a diversity agreement or something. But anyway, we would definitely institute changes if we were organizing a conference based on what we observed, that's for sure. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Sarah and Leo. Are there any closing things you'd like to share with us? I think that, I mean, the take-home message of the paper is just that diversity in the geosciences and probably STEM more generally requires investigating behavioral norms and how the culture of science, which is a very, very, um, entrenched cultural identity has to expand what it means to be a scientist. And one of the problems that it's had so far is that it's just trying to, it's trying to diversify by forcing people to become the same type of ideal scientist. And hopefully, mm -hmm. hopefully what we're doing here is opening up space for what qualifies as an ideal scientist. Maybe there is no ideal scientist. Yeah, exactly. And, um, Diversity can't just be about changing changing the physical bodies that are there, but also about changing the attitudes and yeah yeah. Before we end, I just mm -hmm. um, just to touch on the we did have some limitations of the study that we thought were pretty important. One, like Leo had mentioned, we didn't have demographics data for people of color, so that's something that we recommend at the end of the paper that for conference organizers to do going forward. Another is that we had to self-identify, or we identified for the people who were speaking what their gender was, mm -hmm. or if they were a person of color, which we recognize is very limiting. Um, for, of course, using the binary yeah. is limiting in a lot of ways. Um, so we, we do talk about that a little bit in our paper, and, but we know that some of it's problematic, and we tried to work within limitations, you know, certain limitations of time and space. Um, but these are things that we're thinking a lot about and, you know, we'd love to hear if people have ideas of how we could do it better going forward. That's something that we're really open to. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that this is really inspiring. I actually have to say, like, I am actually in disciplines right now where they have just, well, um, in the Society of Early America, for example, they just put together a committee to talk about, like, issues of, of diversity within the discipline. And then, like, I know that 
and our friends on the committee who are trying to figure out like, well, what does this actually mean? And even though it's a very, a very discipline very far away in many ways from yours, I would try to like at least bring up what you guys have managed to do in case that's at all helpful. So thanks so much for joining me today. Um, thanks to our listeners for joining us for another episode of Page Divas. I'm Dr. Zain Yao. Uh, please like, share, follow, all that type of awesome stuff. We do this uh, because of you guys, because we think it's important. And thanks so much for your love and support, and take care of yourselves. Thanks.